Inflation getting higher Makes it hard on the buyer Unemployment on the rise Gasoline issue filled with lies Rent being paid late Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So in this episode, we'll be beginning our look at at uh, John Kenneth Galbraith's The New Industrial State. This is kind of his second monumental work uh, after the Affluent Society, uh, one of the ones he's most well known for. Maybe not as famous as the Affluent Society, but certainly one that's very relevant to our discussions about contemporary economics and our contemporary crisis. And we're going to get a little bit of, of a bonus in this series as I'm going to be also reviewing and talking about The People's Republic of Walmart by Leigh Phillips and Michael Rozorski. Uh, the subtitle of that book is How the World's Biggest Corporations Are Laying the Foundations for Socialism. Now, it's not because Galbraith is mentioned in the book. I, I don't think he is, uh, but he's in the backdrop because the, both of these books are about planning and uh, the benefit of planning, the necessity of planning, um, you know, whichever way you go at it, we are in a planned economy. And, you know, so much of, of the 20th century was debating planned versus free, planned economy versus free markets. Econ economics textbooks still kind of make that distinction between a command economy and a free market economy. But Galbraith's point, and I, I think he's 100% right here, I, I, I mean, there might be faults on the edges, but I think his core argument stands up, and that is, you know, this is kind of a, a silly debate because the U.S. economy was essentially planned, and he was writing that in the, in the 50s. Um, no, this was early 60s, mid-60s maybe. Um, let me get the date. I wrote it down here. Oh, yeah, 1967, so it's about a decade after he wrote The Affluent Society. Um, so it's it's closer to us in a sense than the affluent society because you know the condition in 1967 is so you know we're getting close to that productivity wage flattening that happens in, in the in the 70s but in any case it's uh, you know I think it's basically anything he says back then is still true today largely uh, maybe in certain insurgent industries you have a period of where there's a little bit more of a free market condition but you know, if you take a look at the internet today, I mean, essentially we have centralization, oligopoly, um, in some sense. I mean, actually, my feeling on some of the internet stuff is we have essentially natural monopolies. In like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and yeah, I, like I know the Chinese are trying to come up with their competitors. That's one reason there's um, th these other sites are banned. It's not just um, censorship; it's also they want to promote their own. Chinese versions. They don't want to just have all the Chinese use YouTube or as a go-to for video vi uh, video um, uploads and viewing. But I would say that you know, China aside, you know, YouTube is pretty close to becoming a, a natural monopoly. I mean, it's I don't see the logic of having you know a dozen different you know platforms competing. You know, it's rather than have one. The problem is, of course, that YouTube is controlled. By a private corporation, they get most of the profits. The creators don't nearly get 
you know, as much compared to the work and the effort and the value they create. Same thing, I could say the same thing with, with Twitter or Facebook or even getting closer to the People's Republic of Walmart book, you know, something like, like Amazon, right? As a public utility, you know, a, a, a system to distribute goods quickly through warehouses efficiently without having to go through thousands and thousands of local retailers. It seems to make a lot of sense in terms of just basic efficiency and whatever nostalgia we may have for the mom and pop store, I can sympathize with that to a degree. Um, ultimately, I say big deal, right? Like, you know, I think the value of getting something overnight, you know, pretty much anything you want, it's pretty good and it's a public good and it's something, I mean, it's not just, I'm saying it's not just good on its own, you know, useful, doesn't have, just have utility. It's, a, it's, it's literally a public good. It's useful to us. Um, whether we can deliver groceries or whatever else, it's just bonus to that. Um, so I think that's a good thing. I just don't think, I don't think much, much of Jeff Bezos as a, as a manager, as a, someone who commands labor. I, I think that could be better as a public utility. And it does sort of function like a natural monopoly in a way, the same way the post office uh, does or did. Um, so I think, in a, you know, with the internet, there's a reason why you maybe early on had a lot of competition in a, you know, in a free market, but eventually you get a few that kind of win out in the game, right? It's kind of like VHS or, or beta, right? It really doesn't make sense to have two competing formats. Um, so it's, it's just those things should be nationalized. It seems to me. Now, Galbraith doesn't go that far. Galbraith doesn't go from um, planning to socialism the way this People's Republic of Walmart book does. But nevertheless, I'm, I'm kind of on that side. But I, I think Galbraith lays some good foundation for us to begin talking about the, 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 at least the necessity of planning. I think, you know, he, he's not so much saying it's good Although in some aspects, it, it seems to have some benefits, but he's just saying this is just the way it has to work. Uh, you can't have the type of economy we have now with without a certain amount of planning. Um, so uh, this book, particular book, this version we have starts with the foreword that was written uh, 40 years later, I think. So, yeah, what does he say here? Yeah. Um, Anyways, years later, he writes this, this introduction, which basically he restates his, his motivation and his core idea, um, which is we live in a world of, quote, great corporations, quote, a world in which people increasingly serve the convenience of those organizations which were meant to serve them. It was a world in which the motivation of those involved did not fit the standard textbook mold, end quote. So that, that's an old Galbraith trope. We've seen it in, in pretty much every book he wrote that we've looked at so far is that there's a disconnect between the reality on the ground and the reality of the way the American capitalist economy works and what we learn in our economics textbooks. Um, but the bulk of this foreword, uh, this little introduction, deals with different criticisms that the book had gotten over the years. I'll just mention them um, because the, the thesis is, is, is pretty simple. It's just planning. Our economy is planned. It's just planned in corporate boardrooms, not in the Kremlin. Um, it doesn't mean there's not a distinction. He actually has a chapter where he talks about socialist planning. But, um, you know, it might be. I think this is the point made in the, in the Philip Rosorsky book is that maybe the Soviets just weren't good planners. 
because they didn't have the experience. They didn't really know how to plan an economy of that scale. You know, it, Walmart does. And we, the evidence for that is the fact that Walmart or had a lot of their key managers poached by Amazon. Well, also a very centrally planned economy of similar size. I mean, these economies, Walmart was about the size of the Soviet Union in, in 1970. Walmart now is about the size of the Soviet Union in 1970 in terms of just GDP and output. You know, Amazon's up there too. So that's the core argument is that we just simply lived in a planned economy. Um, and why is that? You know, that's the question you kind of, why is it? He gets into the question of why and the consequences of that in various um, aspects. Um, but his criticism, the criticisms, well, one is kind of this overall belief that Galbraith has. He mentions in the affluent society as well, that somehow consumers are managed, that consumer choice can somehow be planned. Um, and I think, you know, obviously it can be um, because products are invested in for years and years before they ever hit the shelves. And a lot of work goes into creating that market, right? Um, so it seems to me pretty obvious, but that was a criticism that was leveled. That basically, whatever you can say about production, consumer choice is still ultimately uh, part of the free market and businesses have to respond to the market on that way. Galbraith is not so sure. Galbraith thinks essentially businesses are forced to create their markets through, through advertising, but we can think of other ways of doing it, you know, guaranteed government contracts, for instance. Why do you think so much capital wants to invest in things like private prisons or private military contracting because you get a, you know, you have a guaranteed consumer. Um, another criticism is that the book is not imperial enough. And to that, you know, sure, I guess. Um, but it's not really Galbraith's point. This is more a synthetic book and it's not trying to make the small empirical arguments. He's building off of other works, I think. Um, then you have kind of a leftist criticism that gets leveled. And that is that this sort of ignores the capitalist class as, because I guess the criticism is you're kind of, you're kind of uh, creating an equivalency between Soviet planning and capitalist planning. And that ignores the exploitation in the capitalist system that, I mean, only if you have utopian ideas about the Soviet Union, does that criticism really make much sense. But that was leveled at him. And then there's another about like, don't small businesses survive? Too. And, and Galbraith's point is, sure, they survive, but they don't have nearly the power over the market that the, the, the handful of large corporations do. And for that, we just need to go back to American capitalism and review those arguments. Okay, so let's jump into it. I'll be working mostly off notes for this one. Um, I had the luxury of being able to take some notes in my classes today. All right, chapter one is called Change in the Planning System. And he just kind of uh, talks about why there is, why a planning system is almost inevitable here. And, and one is uh, the size of corporations. They're just so big that they must be internally managed um, and, they, you know, and, and regulated in every aspect of it, supply chains, distribution, advertising, all, all the internal productive me mechanisms. You know, this is why vertical integration is so popular. Now that's actually changing. He, make, he talks a lot about vertical integration in this book, and I would say that's something that doesn't quite apply quite as much anymore because um, outsourcing certain functions has become affordable thanks to globalization and lower tariffs and the cheapness of labor abroad, and, and technology has helped that too. You can, you can set up a call center. Instead of having the call center internally, you have it elsewhere. Now this is actually a topic that the 
People's Republic of Walmart book takes up in that it it does deal with the fact that essentially even though Walmart you know is mainly in the retail aspect they essentially plan production to in their to their suppliers um, so I don't think outsourcing itself undermines the argument uh, that vertical integration is in, is inevitable we just sort of administer it and organize it a little bit differently right so if you have a lot of producers that are single customer producers um, you know obviously they're going to be building things to spec based on what the the corporation that they're buying from from wants and therefore it's still essentially planned so one reason for this is corporate size another is machinery this is a big one it's just machinery both in the sense of the technology of goods requires a lot more research and development and planning just in that side of it but also machinery because you need a lot of capital and so small firms really can't have the same impact on the market because they don't really have the capital to do that. Uh, a third reason is, is just the changing relationship between government and the people. So some of the planning is essentially outsourced to government um, in various ways, primarily education um, is one of those, but the education of the workforce. And if you go back to the feudal age, to the middle ages, businesses, producers had to train their own workforce. It was called apprentices, right? They would take on apprentices. They would be essentially sort of slaves, I guess, but they still had to train them. And that's how they created the workforce. They didn't have, there weren't cobbler schools that they could send you know, kids to where they would take out student loans and end up paying back the fee. It was like the, the producers themselves had to pay for the education. And you could say, well, in a modern economy, you do that through taxes or whatever. Um, but certainly, but the growing role of government here is also part of this planning apparatus. And another is affluence, just the, the mass amount of consumer goods is, is another aspect of this planning system. Um, and then this chapter, he kind of rehashes the myth of the market. I think if you've been listening on this series, we don't need to go over that again. Um, certainly Galbraith thinks the market is a bit of a mythology. And there's just this large disconnect between reality and the theory, um, something it's basically been there from the first page that we read of his. So a really useful chapter that just kind of sets up the obvious. I, I think even though this is the longest of the books, its argument is, is, is maybe the most straightforward. It's because he's just saying we're in a planned economy. And most of the bulk of the book is looking at different aspects of that. Um, chapter two is called The Imperative of Technology. And this chapter is also very useful in that it it talks about why um, or what are the needs of technology. So, so one of the big differences here with maybe early industrial societies or pre-modern societies, artisan cultures, whatever, is just the amount of technology involved. And he actually talks about the needs of technology, that technology sort of has these requirements. And if it doesn't get those, it can't survive. It's like what a technology feeds off of. Um, the first is long-term planning. So that, that kind of makes the case right there. Like without long-term planning, in developing technology and implementing it into factories, collecting the capital to buy the new technologies, really, you're not, it's not gonna work. So um, second, tied to this is capital, immense amount of capital, um, and therefore that's gonna privilege the large firms much more than the small firms. Um, third, we get in, inflexibility. So this uh, maybe is one of the more ironic aspects of it when we think about how fast things are changing and technology is changing. And I think, wow, you know, it, it seems things are moving really fast. But 
You know, if you, there's a great talk. I don't know if it ever became an essay. I think it may have by David Graeber, where he talks about technology. And he actually says, like, as we get later into the 20th century and into the 21st century, technology is not changing at the same rate it used to. Not like in the 19th century, right? That our, our, yeah, we have cell phones now and we have Internet. And there's some cool things about that. But it's, you know, we're not getting the, the jetpacks to go to work or flying car or you know, look at the U.S. with its antiquated mass transportation system. You know, we're not, and, and part of that is because technology, in a sense, is inflexible because of this long-term planning and capital investment that goes behind it. So it's more rigid. It's not as adaptable. And, and it makes sense. Like if you have a big machine that's programmed to churn out one type of product, it takes a long time to build that. It takes a long time to set it up. It takes a lot of planning to get all the specs right. And once it does, it can produce things at a massive rate. But if you need to change it, if you need to retool, that's expensive and time-consuming and, and, and maybe in some cases almost impossible. A worker, a skilled worker, on the other hand, who's skilled at making machine tools or whatever, he can be quickly retrained to read from blueprints a different tool and make them, right? So that's why, that's why the machinist is still such an important um, person in the workforce. They have, they have a little bit of more flexibility than the machine. Uh, fourth, specialized labor. Uh, you're going to need all kinds of specialized labor to, to run the technology and to understand it, and that requires education. Um, a kind of an externality for, for businesses, I suppose, but one that has to be paid for some way. Um, look at the student loan crisis, right? Like, I, my feeling is if, if like, they end up like forgiving the student loans, great. Um, you know, wonderful. It's just, in it, I hope they do it through taxing the rich because the rich have benefited from having a highly trained, educated workforce for decades and decades, and they haven't had to pay for it. They found this really clever way of getting students to pay for it, and basically they end up taking a big chunk of their wages and paying back those loans for a number of years. Um, and they, at the same time, we see disinvestment in the form of you know, tax monies going to schools. So that's businesses are not are, are literally paying less for education than they used to and benefiting more than ever. So, yeah, they, I think they just should straight up be taxed and and use that to pay off the student loans and to pay in the future for free college for anyone who wants it because they benefit from specialized labor. They need it. Um, none of that's in Galbraith. That's just me. Although he does think a lot about schools and he talks a lot about education later on and in the affluent society. All right, five, organization, obviously. Division of labor, different departments, everything has to be managed very, very carefully. Central to planning. You can't imagine planning without organization. And the last one, which is maybe the most interesting, is you need a kind of futurism almost. One imperative technology is, is a sort of futurism. He writes, from time to time, or sorry, from the time and capital that must be committed, the inflexibility of this commitment, the large the needs of large organizations and the problems of market performance under conditions of advanced technology come the necessity for planning. Tasks must be performed so that they are right, not for the present, but for the time in the future when complete comp companion and related work having also been done. The whole job is completed. So, I mean, it's it, the idea here is that the R&D, let's take the new iPad, whatever it's coming out, or the new iPhone, I don't care. Whatever example you want to think about. Um, you know, the R&D on that is being done for some model down the road. I don't know how many years. 
Um, and when that's done, then they have to go into production and there has to be things set up for that to happen. And, and there has to be distribution and marketing has to be rolled out at the right time. So all that requires an immense amount of planning, obviously. So that, that ability to have that kind of, uh, to, to project the, these things into the future requires some, um, you know, for, like fortune telling almost, but it's a whole planned fortune telling, right? It's, it's prophecy. It's not really um, prediction so much. It's really prophecy because of obviously everything is being planned. So then chapter three is called the nature of industrial planning. Um, and here he gets into some of the ideology of the world word planning. This is, of course, key to his argument in a way, because he is right at a time when the Soviet Union, it's still the Cold War. And so the Soviet Union was seen as the epitome of a planned economy. And the United States was the free market economy. Right. And he says this is basically all ideology um, planning to say planning as a sort of a bad thing. is just Cold War um, rhetoric that doesn't really help us understand the reality. Um, and what the nature of industrial planning, he argues here, needs essentially to control several things and, and three things he highlights in particular. One is the need to control the market. And how do you do that? Well, you create it or you, you manage it in some way. Um, the second thing you need to do is control supply. Um, and you do this through vertical integration, right? That's the best way or through some sort of having exclusive relationship with, with suppliers so they're basically in your circle right they're they're affiliated to you if even if they're independent so you need to control the supply in some way and that's all going to be planned and then finally you need to control prices um, now maybe consumer prices are the hardest to plan for and control but we've seen ways already reading galbraith how that can be done through oligopoly or whatever essentially price fixing um, but more, maybe more importantly is controlling the price of raw materials and, and supplies. So, you know, why do you have a warehouse? I guess now we have more of this just-in-time type production. But, you know, back in the day, why do you have warehouses full of, of raw materials? You know, the, the just-in-case kind of phenomenon. Well, partially it's to control supply, right, or control price. It's like you buy stuff when it's, when it's cheap and you don't buy it when it reaches a certain level. So, so you overall and your firm can control the prices. But again, all that requires an immense amount of planning that smaller firms simply cannot really engage in. Um, he makes a funny uh, statement here that like the enemy of the market is, is not really the communist so much, but the engineer, right? The engineer who wants everything clearly, clearly laid out and planned and no, no mistakes, everything pinpointed down to the micro, micrometer, you know, in the blueprints or whatever. He's the real enemy of the free market, not the, not your, your, your socialists so much. Um, so then we can move on. Chapter four, planning and capital supply. So now we get into some of the explanations of, uh, of these different aspects of planning. Um, planning and capital supply. So how do you plan for capital supply, right? That's, that's tougher because where do you get that from? Well, it depends on the savings rate of the country overall, which firms you th would think would not have that much control over. Um, you know, taxation plays a role in that, right? You know, so of course, if, um, how might it do that? Well, if you have like high income taxes, you know, you might, I guess the way it works and, and correct me if I'm wrong, if anyone's out there, if you have a high income tax on, on high earnings, then firms will not, there'd be no reason to pay out high salaries to executives, right? 
if you're being taxed 90% on all your money over a million dollars, why pay someone two million? Why not just pay them a million? Because um, they're not gonna get that money anyways. It's all gonna go to government. So instead you take that million dollars, you would have paid the, the, the CEO and you put it into savings or you put in a capital investment, right? So taxation can help with this. So that's a way that government sometimes is a companion to planning. Um, you know, but of course, one thing they can do is can they control their own savings and their own investments um, to do that. And he actually makes the case, and this is, I don't know if it's empirically true or not. I really don't have the background to, to, to judge this, but he makes the claim that just a handful of corporations really decide what the savings rate will be in the country. Um, and, you know, there's various ways they might do that through, you know, their own choices as 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 producers maybe through um um the products they put out too, the, their prices they can have some effect on the savings rate of the country overall but essentially you know that's maybe the hardest to manage and plan is you know what um joe six-pack will save year by year but i think it doesn't really matter because it's a smaller part of overall savings that he's concerned about. He thinks it's mostly in corporations. But I, I think especially the tax rate can be an important factor in this. Um, chapter five is called Is Capital in Power? And, you know, he always likes going back to this American anxiety over power. He's, he did it in American capitalism um, and a little bit in the great crash there. But certainly in American capitalism, there was this deep anxiety over power. And the reality of the economy is oligopoly. So how do you have a society built on principles of liberty and equality and small agrarian, you know, independent people when you have all the real power in society is in these handful of producers? Um, and he plays this really, he has this really interesting conversation on about where is power in the economy? Like who, you know, owning what gives you power? What do you need to own to have power? And he says, of course, for most of human history, it would be land. Because why? Well, that's where most production was. It was in the land. All the production that really mattered was in the land. So if you had the land, you could then extract your rent from that in various ways. Um, and, you know, what would it be now? What is the equivalent now? And, and he comes to the conclusion, what it is, is essentially expertise and the technocracy. That is where power is now. So I said I want to do it much in this episode, but I do want to quote him here. Um, Power has, in fact, passed to what anyone in search of novelty might be justified in calling a new factor of production. This is the association of men of diverse technical knowledge, expertise, or other talent which modern industrial technology and planning require. It extends from the leadership of the modern industrial enterprise down to just short of the labor force and embraces a large number of people and a large variety of talent. It is on the effectiveness of this organization, as most business doctrine agree, that the success of the modern business enterprise now depends. Were this organization dismembered or otherwise lost, it could not easily be recreated. To create one of the new to create one for a new task is difficult, costly, and uncertain undertaking. As before with land, then later with capital, power goes with what is difficult, costly, and uncertain to, to of procurement. So it is with organization, organized competence that the power now lies. Our next text is to examine in some depth this new locus of power in the business enterprise and the society. And I think here's where maybe the, it's not a excusing the Soviets or, the, or state socialism so much, but it's, it helps explain why planning seemed to be less effective 
in the states that seem committed to the to planning compared to the free market societies that were planning while denying they were planning. And it might just be they didn't have really the expertise. It was the people who were doing the planning really didn't have the know-how. And maybe they would have. You know, maybe you could look at China and say maybe China's gotten to the point where that expertise is there, right? Um, you know, someone like Jack Ma is, you know, you know, an adjunct of the state in a lot of ways in, in China. And he's very much of this technocratic class, you know, and he's probably a much better planner than anyone that Mao Zedong had, you know, in his time or any of those first couple five-year plans, as effective as they might have been. That planning was, was limited, right? And this is kind of an apolitical argument Galbraith is trying to make, it seems to me, that he's not really talking about the motives behind it. It seems with the same expertise, a socialist state committed to workers' democratic dictatorship and a, and a capitalist firm uh, committed to exploiting the workforce, you know, could be equally effective in their goals, right? And of course, they'll have slightly different goals. Both would agree production is important, I suppose. They might have different attitudes towards labor or whatever. But in both cases, planning would require this expertise. And if you don't have it, you're just not, you know, you can try planning, but like you could, I wouldn't know how to plan, you know, production networks and transportation and all that stuff. So, I don't know, stuff to think about. Um, chapter six is called the technostructure. That's the word he uses. He does, like, technocracy would be the people. He doesn't use that term really. He talks the technostructure, and that's the whole infrastructure of planning, all the the whole bu corporate bureaucracy, if you will, um, and the corporate and technological bureaucracy. So he calls it the technostructure, and this chapter essentially is the definition of this. It's, uh, a couple of things about this. One is it, it replaces the entrepreneur. It's clearly a replacement of the entrepreneur. Whatever the entrepreneur did, whatever place it had in human history in the past, that time is gone. Now the power is in, um, quote, chairman, president, those vice presidents with important staff or departmental responsibilities, occupants of other major staff positions, and perhaps division or department heads not included above. It includes, however, only a small proportion of those who as participants contribute information to the group decisions. This latter group is very large. It extends from the most senior officials of the corporation to where it meets to the outer perimeter, the white and blue collar workers who function is to conform more or less mechanically to instructions or routine. It embraces all those who bring specialized knowledge, talent, or expertise to group decision making. This, not the narrow management group, is the guiding intelligence, the brain of the enterprise. So he says, no one, there's no name for this, so I'm gonna give it a name. I'm gonna call it the techno structure. Um, and then chapter seven is just called the corporation. So he makes the obvious point. He talks a little bit of the history of the corporation as a legal entity, something um, of course well known. But he talks about how there's really no one corporation because different the techno structure maybe once it's set up is not entirely flexible. It has its own limits and flexibility, but it has to be very diverse. Each corporation will have its own kind of techno structure established. They'll be of different sizes. They'll be have different functions. But they're all going to have a similar relationship to the techno structure. They're all going to need capital abundance and they're all going to need steady earnings. So the goals of the corporation and now really the brain of that being the techno structure are going to be things like um, steady earnings and capital abundance as a as the foundation for this. And why is this? Well, he gets into it later in the book. 
and that is largely to reduce risk um, because reduction of risk is one of the key functions of the, of the techno structure. So there it is. That's my brief read through of the first hundred pages of the new industrial state. And now, as promised, I wanted to go into a little bit uh, Leif, Lee, Lee Phillips and Michael Rosorsky's book, The People's Republic of Walmart. This was published in 2019. So this is a, a, a quite short book. Um, the, the EPUB version is only about 100 pages or so. Uh, it probably corresponds to maybe 200 pages. I don't know what the print version of this book is. Um, but quite fascinating, I think. And as far as I know, and I haven't, I don't have the footnotes. If there are footnotes in those books, they're not in the EPUB version I have. So I don't know if he's like citing Galbraith. I did a, a text search. I didn't find him mentioned in the book. But Galbraith is kind of running through this in a way. Um, so um, he, it's kind of chatty in the beginning, um, talking about the origin of the book and the ideas. And, and it's got a few jokes in it. So it's, it's, it's a much more pleasant book to read in that way than maybe the new industrial state. Um, but, um, he, you know, he, he, the introduction establishes that there's never really been a free market. Um, even early on in human societies, there's been planning. And so planning has always been a central part of our economies. And, you know, he's care they're careful not to say they're defending Walmart or think Walmart's a corporation. They, they give the requisite condemnation of Walmart, but they say, Maybe there's something here. Maybe Walmart is a model of a planned economy that can be kind of harnessed and taken over. So where did I hear this argument before? Well, I heard it from uh, Iron Heel, the main character of the Iron Heel. I forget his name. Ernst Everhart, I think his name is. He's uh, at a meeting, a socialist meeting, and a bunch of small grocers who are being pushed up by the big corporations. Come to the socialist meetings and they say, we're on board. We're on board the struggle. And Everhart gives him the speech where he says, yeah, we don't really want you. You can be a proletariat like us, but we are not going to fight for you to restore your little crappy mom and pop stores, your little grocers. We are going to take over the conglomerates. We're going to take over the, the huge food distributors because it's more efficient. And we're not going to move backward. We're going to move forward. And by moving forward, we're going to, to nationalize it. And actually, this book seems to get into the question of nationalization. Um, you know, I think that might, I don't know. Like, obviously, I think anarchists would have a bit of a problem with this. Maybe they deal with that a little bit when they talk about the question of nationalization. Obviously, the other problem is so much of this is global, right? If you were to nationalize something like Facebook, well, nationalize under what nation, right? It's, it's international, clearly. So the introduction kind of sets up uh, their, their argument that Walmart's planned and maybe this is something socialists can um, learn from. Also, but a lot of this just dwells on like dealing with what I think we already know here. If you're listening to this podcast, if you've read Galbraith, that this free market idea doesn't really exist. And the free market, even if it does exist, it's not very efficient. It doesn't do certain things really well. It's not efficient at creating affordable housing in cities. It's not efficient at providing internet to rural areas. It's not efficient at, at providing a lot of goods, healthcare for everyone, um, for instance. It's more efficient, or it's like actually health. So it's sometimes more efficient to let people die. Yeah, they actually give the example here. I think it's in the introduction of a 
of, of like flesh-eating bacteria, antibiotic-resistant flesh-eating bacteria, and a boy who got this horrible infection, and they had to like amputate part of his leg because it was, it's cheaper to amputate the few people who get these than to actually develop um, antibiotics that won't work anymore. Um, that's a that's the market working for you. Um, uh, so chapter two of this is called uh, "Could Walmart Be a Socialist Plot?" And there's some there's a nice mention here out to to Frederick Jameson, who I actually liked. I, I read the book he's meant, that's mentioned here. It's a 2005 really thick book called "Archaeologies of the Future," which basically talks about utopia in in our current epoch. Um, from different ways. I don't remember all his arguments, but I think that's where he kind of establishes that uh, phrase. You know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the, than the end of capitalism. Right? But apparently, Jameson used Walmart as a thought experiment at some point, suggesting that Walmart could be essentially a, a socialist Trojan horse. And that's of what this whole book is kind of founded on. Obviously, not that Sam Walmart was a secret socialist trying to establish a planned economy through his, his business, but it is, in a sense, being a Trojan horse for, for socialism. We're planning a little bit. Um, then we get a section called the, the Socialist Calculation Debate in this chapter, uh, which is basically the debate from the 20th century, which is the debate over free markets versus planning. And basically, the two extremes are you know, planning is most efficient, and therefore we should plan everything. The second opinion is planning is, or free markets are more efficient, and therefore everything should be free markets. And in reality, we have these mixed economies, right? But the authors here challenge equivocation on both sides here. And I think that's kind of brave of them because there's many people on the left who will say, yeah, planning is good for some things, but maybe not others, right? But if planning is superior, why not plan anything? That's not something they feel has been adequately answered. You know, and actually, I'm on the mixed side here. I, I don't really want government making um, movies necessarily. Um, although I will admit, movie making is, of course, another very much a planned activity. You know, it's not planned by government, but it's planned. And so, in that sense, they're right. Yeah, you know, there's is there a free market in film? Is Hollywood a free market anymore? Where you got a handful of, I mean, everything's Disney, right now. If you look at the top box office. Sellers, you know, box office uh, earners in a, in a given year. They're all Disney. They're all different branches of Disney, right? And they don't compete internally. They all, it all is all planned. So it's kind of like the Walmart model. So anyways, good stuff here. There is, he, he, these authors, because they're responding not to the climate that Galbraith is responding to, but re responding to neoliberals and libertarians and anarcho-capitalists and those people, we get a lot of, of Mises and Hayek and these people, these, these free market fundamentalists, um, you know, the Austrian School of Economics. I don't know if they're worthy of as much attention they do get in this book, but I understand why they're there. It's just because a lot of people um, cotton to those ideas. Um, so there's a great example in this chapter, too, of, of Sears. I, I didn't know this particular story. Of course, I, I read the news that Sears, about Sears going bankrupt. But um, apparently Sears, was it in, when, when did that happen? I don't know if we have the date here. Um, but sometime in the past, this was when were, Sears was being challenged by Amazon already. 
this guy named um, Edward Lampert took over Sears. And he was a Anne Randian libertarian, laissez-faire kind of egoist type. And he wanted to implement a free market within Sears. So he said the best way to make, have, have the different individual components of Sears make money is to have them compete for resources and, and market and consumers and, and all that. And he, and he thought then each will do, be more efficient and more effective and that will save the company. And it was a total disaster, partially because each firm like tried to protect its own interests at the expense of neighboring departments. You had, uh, they were all clamoring for whatever cash reserves were available, and there was no overall planning, and Sears went from bad to worse very, very quickly. Um, and then chapter three is called Islands of Tyranny. This uh, gets into a lot of the other debates of, of the early 20th, or, or the 20th century. Um, Hayek, um, yeah, uh, one guy who, who who, liked, who was interested in planning named Kose. A lot of these people I didn't, Ronald Kose, a lot of these people I didn't really know that much about, but they're in this debate whether about planning versus free markets. But we get this really interesting thought experiment where um, a guy, what was his name, Herbert Simon, asked, you know, if aliens were to come and look at the earth and you could see the firms, companies, institutions, businesses as green, and lines as like red lines connecting the firms. And so you might think, well, we're in a global economy, so what matters is the interconnection of things. So what you would see then, what you, what you expect would to see if you, you read your economics textbook is lots of red lines. You know, all these individual consumers, individual producers competing and a lot of global trade. So you'd see red lines everywhere. And he says, no, that's not what you'd see. Instead, you'd see green. You'd just see a washing green because what really matters is the institutions. And if you look inside those institutions, right, what are they? They're planned tyrannies in most cases, right? They're not democracies. They're hierarchically structured, internally planned as much as the Soviet Union was planned. So he says we're, we're kind of looking at the world wrong if we're focusing on the red lines instead of on the green blocks. And I think it's a really useful way of thinking about it. It's a useful thought experiment. Well, anyways, I, that's the first three chapters or so. I think they do a good job of, of laying out the debate over planning versus free markets. And he, you know, he doesn't quite get to Walmart and Amazon yet. Uh, or they don't quite get to Walmart and Amazon and those companies yet. But chapter four is called Mapping the Amazon. So he will. Um, so I'll read a few more chapters of this and tag it on to my next episode about uh, the new industrial state. So we're going to read these two books together. Yeah, if I want to. So anyways, that's it for now. So if you have any thoughts about planning, about a planned economy and, and Galbraith's argument about it, or if you've read The People's Republic of Walmart and have thoughts about that, let me know. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you about these issues. Um, so anyways, that's going to be it for now. Crying too, they can't do the job they wanna do.